0: how they train is proudly brought to you by pillar performance to launch our partnership pillar performance are giving away a massive prize pack valued at 2000 us dollars it includes a free race entry to any full distance iron man globally a 200 usd pillar performance gift card to use on any of their products and a one hour free consultation with world-leading sports performance dietitian pip taylor to be in the draw All you have to do is head over to Instagram and follow both the pillar performance and how they train pages. Once you've done that, you're in the running to win. If you already follow both, don't stress, your name's already in the draw. The winner will be drawn and announced on February 5th, so make sure you've gone and followed both pages by then. Colin Chartier, welcome to How They Train, mate. Uh, for most people, your name became one they'd heard um, of after you won the the PTO US Open a few months ago, a, a race, I think, close to no one picked or expected you to win. And then you became more and more familiar to everyone in the triathlon world, largely via your training with Lionel Sanders under the eye of your coach at the time, Mikhail Eden. Um, who's obviously the the well known brother of Gustav Eden and a coach under the now famous Norwegian team. Um, I, I want to dive straight into that period of time, Colin. Do you think you could tell us a little bit about how you came to be training under Mikael Eden and and training with Lionel Sanders and your lead up in into the PTO US Open that you won?
1: Yeah. Um, thanks, Jack, for having me. Um, let's talk right into the PTO. Um, that was definitely the best race of my career to this date. Um, and you, and you mentioned like nobody had heard of me before that race. And, you know, I think that's true in the whole, you know, in the general world of triathlon, but if you were to ask any of the athletes there or even in the year prior, if I was at a race, if they knew me, yeah, they, they would know me. So it's, it was kind of interesting because most people I know are the athletes. They know me quite well but the rest of the world, the media, the sponsors, they would have no clue who I was. So yeah, you're right in that no one bet on me for that race, but it would be a different story if you were to talk to the other athletes on that start list.
0: And so how did you, how like in the lead up to that race, how long had you been working um, with Mick Al Eden for? And, and were you training with Lionel and and Rudy and the crew before that race? and, and, what what was the lead up to that race? Like how how did that look for you? How how long was the the training block? Um and and what specifically were you doing?
1: Yeah um starting with McCall, I started working with him January 1st last year. Um basically I had been self coached for the three years prior, and I really got the most out of I could out of myself. And there was a lot of trial and error and a lot of error and eventually I was like done I needed I needed to start inviting people into my team and starting to be more professional in the training so I was super uh, happy to start working with McCall and yeah so that that was January 1st and you know PTO US Opens in what was that September and yeah there was a lot that went into it there was mostly a bad year for me prior to that time you know about a month before PTO Dallas I was was starting to actually train well I had been dealing with quite a lot of injuries had to pull out of several races Um, but yeah so prior to the U.S. Open was the PTO Canadian Open in Edmonton and that was in July and that's when I first met Lionel for the first time and He'd extended the invitation that I should, I could come out and train with him anytime. And I had already had a training camp planned out in uh, Mammoth Lakes, California after uh, the Canadian open. And I basically, I just scrapped all those plans and I went right out to uh, Tucson, Arizona to train with Lionel. And yeah, I, that was such a great decision. I'm so grateful for my time, those two months training with Lionel and that's where things really heated up, and what ultimately led me to this performance in in Dallas.
0: And so, when was Lionel like? When did Lionel start getting coached by Mick Eden And compared to when you did?
1: Yeah, so I, I first met McCall in at the Collins Cup in 2021, and you know, I just r- briefly met him at dinner. But I had been aware that he was talking with Lionel back then and that was in the summer of 2021 about coaching so I it was already I was already intrigued and that was on my radar and then I watched Lionel's performances after that and he had some great results and after Indian Wells in December where he smashed that that's when I reached out to McCall so Lionel had probably five or six months uh jump start on me uh for working with McCall
0: And so when, like, like I sort of already, um, asked a little bit when you guys were, were training in the lead up to the PTO US open, um, what, what kind of stuff exactly were you doing? Like, can you sort of take us inside the the camp at the time and, um, and the training that you guys were doing in the lead up to that race and, and what it looked like?
1: Yeah. So the, the two weeks prior to that was probably our best training sessions together. Before that, I had been focusing on Ironman Tremblant preparation and Lionel was going to the Collins cup. So we, we were, before that, we were kind of a split training program because I was doing more Ironman specific work. Um, But then after Ironman Tremblant and after the Collins cup, we came back and we're like, okay, let's take this up a notch. Like we're going to train to win regardless of, the lactate or whatever, like we started to push it. We were going to go, go for the win or go for Brooke. I mean, and yeah, ultimately we did break. <laughs> so <laughs> it wasn't the smartest plan, but for me that came with the win at PTO Dallas before my demise in Kona. Um, but the training, like the week before PTO U uh, S open, I did a 28 hour training week. And that was a 96k running week, and for me at the time, I'd coming from taking like five weeks off of running um, before the Canadian Open, so I was really trying to like get back to running, and I was only running 50 to 60k's a week, so this was a quite a you know significant step up, and it wasn't really any easy running in that. Like Monday, so this was uh, the week prior um monday we had a 5.5 hour brick and we were in tucson arizona at this time and it was quite hot we were in 37 to 41 degrees celsius <sighs> um so 5.5 hour brick where we did a 3 hour 50 minute bike and we were indoors on this one to not get so hot uh we were, we did 4 by 45 minutes at our um supposed to be LT1 you know kind of ironman pace but i did it at 270 to 290 watts which which is quite a a bit above what i did at ironman mount tremblant so i already started ratcheting up the intensity there and i'm i'm like a kind of a you know lighter guy so you, even though the the watts aren't very impressive the power to weight ratio is quite good at 63 kilos um, and then off the bike, we did run outside in, in the heat and that was 39 Celsius at the time. And it was an, so it was midday. I mean, we, we just did a four hour bike ride. Um was an hour 50 run where we had two by 45 minutes at uh, like an LT1 Ironman pace. But, but it really was, I mean, I did it in 336 and, and the second one at 338. And I, I definitely blew up toward the last one. Um, so yeah, that that was that's the Monday. And then Tuesday, just a recovery swim. Wednesday, uh, did a threshold bike workout where it was like a 20 minute, two by ten, four by five, four by three minutes um where I was going. And then that was an outdoor workout. So it was in the heat. And we did that in the morning, so it's kind of like a moderate heat. Um and I, I was pushing like 320 to three thirty watts on those. And then a 45-minute run off the bike in the heat, because now it's later in the day, where, yeah, Lionel and I ran side by side and in the desert. And that was, like, supposed to be, like, get the core temp up. And we did that at, like, 4.02, 4.03 per K. Um, yeah, then there's an afternoon threshold swim, you know, 5K, 5K set with 15 200s. So, I mean, that's Wednesday, and then Thursday was an easy day, but still five hours of volume. Friday, VO2 max swim, another threshold run, um, where we did like uh, 2 times 2.5K, 4 times 1.2K, by 600s and that was all 3.13 to 3.05 per K. And then it was like a brutal heat prep ride, like right after that run, where we were indoor chamber, just trying to get as hot as we possibly could and try to like pass out. That was, yeah, pretty insane day right there. And then a Saturday was an easy couple hours and then Sunday, so Sunday, that was seven days before the race, uh, was an eight hour day of Ironman pace work. But we did an Ironman swim, uh, four hour ride with four by one hour at like 200, for me, Ironman pace. Uh, watts and then a two-hour run off the bike in the heat. Um, at like three forty-four to three forty per K. So that was that was the accu- accumulation of like a hell week there, and then it was race week.
0: Yeah, holy shit, Colin. I've um, I've talked to a lot of professional triathletes at this point and heard a lot of training weeks, and I've heard some that are a little longer than that. Like Craig Alexander had some pretty famous like thirty-five to thirty-eight hour weeks that were brutal, but Maybe outside of that, that's that that week you've just described there might be the the most insane week that that I've heard someone talk to me about on this show. that, that like there's just a crazy amount of stress in that week. You've obviously got yeah, ridiculous yeah. heat stress, like you you're out there running in the heat of the day 38 to, to 40 41 degrees Celsius, which is just like unexplainably hot to do sessions in. And then you're, you're doing um, long indoor bike sessions and, and threshold bike sessions in the heat and VO2 max uh, run and swim sessions. And, and and then you're doing some insane heat training work inside as well um, on the bike, just because that 40 degrees outside isn't enough. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. And a couple of proper long specific days too. That's, yeah, I'm still trying to process that week a little bit.
1: Yeah, then Lionel and I also hot tubbed every night.
0: Not, 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 <laughs> Just not, <for> fun. <laughs> not ice bath though. Lionel stuck out of the ice bath.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, ice bath was Kona, but we did hot
0: tubs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. So I've got so many questions to ask off that. Um, that week obviously was, was massive, but what did the weeks look like prior to that? Were they equally as big or not quite?
1: Yeah, they were not quite as big. I mean, they were in the 25 hour per week. Um, yeah, area, but but it was very similar format. That that had been a couple of weeks accumulating up to that, where we built the sessions up. Um, but really, the 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 difference was so so. McCall joined us at our camp about midway through this this week, and the weeks the two weeks prior to that, when Lionel and I were were starting to push up the pace. Um, like you know I was getting a little out of control with the long bike intervals nearing my my LT2 walks you know like the 4 by 45 minute that Monday brick like I was just pushing basically as hard as I could until I blew up on the bike and then I did the same on the run and that so McCall came on Thursday or Friday and I started to control the intensity get into the right zones. Um, like but that Sunday eight hour day was actually quite easy for me because it was just like, okay, just bring it down a notch, bring it down a notch, bring it down a notch. So it was really a controlled session. And um yeah. So there there was definitely a bit of pushing outside of what was prescribed by McCall. And then he came in and kind of got us under control. Which was yeah, I which probably saved the race. If I smashed myself for eight hours the week before I probably wouldn't have been able to do what I did in, uh, Dallas.
0: I'm going to come straight back to this training, but I just sort of want to foreshadow where, where this conversation is going to go a little bit. So obviously you go on to win the, the PTO US open in Dallas, which was a pretty, was a pretty famous race last year because it was like, there wouldn't have been many hotter races, um, that, that happened in world triathlon. It was like everyone was blowing up everyone was struggling on the run. it was you know 40-ish degrees Celsius during the middle of the day it was it was a brutal brutal race and and you went on to, to win that by by sort of running through the, the front end of the field and everyone seemed to be suffering except you. you were the you were the one exception during that race where you looked like it was it wasn't even hot. Um, and, and even like in commentary and, and stuff like that, everyone was sort of like a little bit, there was still a little bit of a, who's this guy? Like he can't win this, this, this caliber of race, which I found quite surprising. I thought if you were watching that race, it was very obvious early on in the run that like, oh, you were. You were running a lot faster than everyone in front of you. You were going to catch the big names. You know, you were going to catch the Magnuses and the and the Sam Longs. And and that seemed obvious, but there was sort of a reluctance to to accept that in the commentary because you didn't have that that big name. But then when you went to the front, like you were just absolutely in control of that race. You looked so good in the heat. You 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 won easily in the end. And then leading into Kona, which wasn't wasn't that long after that race. There was a lot of talk about about you being someone who could potentially end up at the front of the race on on the podium. A lot of people were predicting you, um, Colin, to in, in like their their pre Kona, um, you know, top threes. That you are you were second and third. Not many people had you winning, but you were second and third on a lot of people's lists that I saw, and and it was pretty much all on based on how well you performed in the in the heat of, of Dallas, Texas, which people obviously equated to being pretty similar to the conditions in Kona. And then famously, I reckon where you even more so than the US Open, where you really started to, to become a household name in the triathlon w- world was in the lead up to Kona, where you were sort of doing like a, a, a YouTube video series training with Mikael and, and Lionel in the lead up to the race. And, you guys were training crazy hard out there. From the outside looking in, and and even other pros that were talking about how how hard you guys were training on the island and how hard you and Lionel were pushing the week up to, to Kona and and you both went on to have um, subpar yeah. subpar Terrible. finishes and Terrible. results. Yeah. It, yeah, it was pretty shit. <laughs> you, you both had pretty shit races considering how good athletes yeah. you are there. And so this is where that conversation's leading, and we're going to go all in on that, but if you come back again to, to the period before the U.S. Open that we were talking about, you said that you and Lionel said, well, fuck it, we're going to push here and we're, we're going to really try to win these races and train hard. How, how like, did you guys have the sense at the time that, that you were training a little bit hard and that, that things were getting a little bit crazy and, and that maybe it wasn't the right approach or did the win at the U.S. The US Open sort of, um, you know, give you confidence that you were doing the right thing?
1: Yeah I think I mean for me I the US Open gave me confidence that what I was doing was working and that was ultimately a mistake going into Kona um because right like you can anyone can push for a couple of weeks and get a great training stimulus and you know it's called overreaching and then then you enter a period where it's non-functional and it's it's overtraining and you're just actually getting worse so that for me, you know, a couple of weeks I was pushing hard and great results. Um I think unfortunately for Lionel during race week of the PTO US Open, there was a there was a heat another heat run where I think it was just too much. Like if that one session he hadn't done it, I believe he could have had a great race there.
0: Can you tell me about that session Colin?
1: Oh, it was it was like um uh, this was Tuesday after that 8-hour day. So this was in race week. And I was actually pretty beat up, so i was I was overdressed in you know tights and a cycling jacket and a hat on the treadmill, and basically, I could barely make it like a thirty minute run just because my calves were so beat up, not not the heat, but my calves were beat up so i I stopped and but then I was sitting on the couch and Lionel's on the treadmill uh, you know another treadmill, McCall and I are sitting there, and you could hear the effort and you know when you have an effort like that in race week it just completely takes away from the race
0: and what was the session on the treadmill column
1: no it's just a heat prep run like it was supposed to be a moderate moderate heat prep
0: yeah and so the pace of the run wasn't that fast the the duration wasn't that long but the heat was just you know an effort that sort of sunk him
1: yeah it was an hour an hour run an hour heat run where i think the perceived exertion is quite high and then And I think we followed up into the hot tub and, you know, that's that kind of session can actually just completely deplete you in a, in a race week.
0: And I think this is a thing with the Norwegians at the moment where, um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, like sort of unknown about the way they go about things, and a lot of mystique about the the way the Norwegians train and the the Norwegian method that everyone sort of calls it. Um, and you guys were training under Mikael, who who is a product of, of that environment and and their training methods. Um, and and talking to Olav, um, the who's the sort of the Norwegian head coach on this podcast, he he was telling me how they believe they're ahead of the game when it comes to what they're doing with the heat, with the heat prep and that, that no one else is really doing what they are. But obviously, you and Lionel are working with someone who knows exactly what they're doing. So we can only assume that you're doing exactly what they're doing. Um, can you sort of take us inside exactly what that, what that heat prep did look like? You sort of talked to us a little bit about it already, but can you go into even more detail on that?
1: Yeah, I, I can't go into more detail just because it is – it was told to me not to go into more detail about the specific heat prep we were doing because it does come from, yeah, Olaf and Arlid and what what they're doing.
0: Right. So is there more to it that we don't know outside of just these um, indoor heat sessions and and the hot tubs and and training during the middle of the day? Is there some sort of big secret?
1: No, it's, it's all those, but it's more about the details. You know, there's a lot of work doing with the core sensors and, you know, it's about, it's not really like anyone can do the same training program, but it's how you do that training program that, that makes a difference. If, if that makes sense.
0: And do you feel like, um, it worked for you? Do you feel like the, the way that you guys were heat prepping was a big factor in why you won the, the PTO US Open?
1: Absolutely. I, I didn't even feel hot in that race. Like it was that it felt easy. I did not feel hot one, one bit
0: in that race. And so with that, obviously a really hot race and then to Kona, can you sort of take me through the, the the patch or the period of time between the US Open and Kona, where Kona, like we've talked about, you had a shitty result in the US Open, you had an insane result, one of the best performances of the year and definitely the best performance you've ever had in your career where you felt so good, um, didn't even feel the heat, and then were walking for a large part of the marathon at, at, at Kona. Can you take me through that that period and, and and what happened in your training and and in the weeks leading into Kona?
1: Yeah, I, I actually, I mean, I have the, the notes and details now. I, I really left my race in training the week before the race. Um. And I, I I don't know if I'd mentioned, but I had like some like niggles going into the PTO US Open, some hip pain, and like I was in a conversation uh, with a with an old uh, coach and a mentor, of mine Zane Castro, like the night before Dallas, saying like Yeah, I'm I'm either gonna win or have issues with my hip, and basically that carried on into the prep after Dallas, where the next Monday, which was the day after the race, that was just like a travel day, easy swim. Tuesday got into like two and a half hours of easy training, nothing crazy. But then Wednesday, so just three days after the race, we're already into you know threshold bike with eight
0: by ten minutes. And Colin, was this at was this over in Kona, or you hadn't got to Kona yet?
1: No, so Monday we flew back to Tucson. And later that Friday, we were to fly to Kona. But this was, yeah, pretty good train. I mean, three days after Dallas, two and a half hour threshold bike, where I was actually pushing quite well. And then uh, six, four hundreds threshold swim later that day. And then Thursday, so four days after the race, I was nine by two K threshold on the run. An hour 40 run. So basically, did the race again. Yeah. <laughs> I was, yeah, 316 to 320 per K on that.
0: Holy fuck, Colin. That's insane. And then
1: fr- Friday traveled to Kona the, the next day after that run.
0: And how far out from the race are we here on that Friday?
1: So this is, uh, let's see. So from, from PTO US Open to Kona was three weeks. So this was, yeah, three weeks before the race.
0: Yeah. And then, so how, what sort of happened once you got to Kona? So you'd obviously had the race that pretty insane week after the race and then got to Kona on the Friday. And then can you sort of take me step by step from that Friday that you got to Kona right up until sort of race day?
1: Yeah. So, so pretty much, so that's Saturday and then the next um, eight days. So that weekend plus one day, that's where it all happened. That's where I just kind of went nuts it was uh, Saturday, first day, first morning in Kona, just an easy twenty k run, easy ninety minute ride, easy three k swim, just to get acclimated. Sunday into a three hour ride with three by thirty minutes, and that was on the, on the Queen K, and I was pushing two seventy watts on that open water swim, one hour run. So again, like sort of an easy day, like a longer easy day. And then Monday, easy day, Tuesday was, another, was a pretty big session. That was like our do the full bike course and run off the bike. So that was our big session. And the four and a half hour bike where I think I did 170K, where I did four by 45 minutes and then 30 minute effort all between, you know, all in on the course in the conditions between like 265 and 290 watts. And just for reference, I I averaged nowhere near this in the race. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, yeah, and then and then hour fifty runoff where it was like four by twenty five minutes, and that was all all kind of like at race pace or predicted race pace three forty seven like three fifty per k on the Queen K and on Energy Lab. Um, yeah, Wednesday easy run Thursday a yeah, two-hour ride and then into like an hour so i was having quite a bit of hip pain now at this point um there was like a threshold run set where we had like eight or ten by four minutes and i i, I just really couldn't make more than six without having pain so i stopped early then i had a great swim like a, a fantastic swim went to that pool in kona I had five by eight hundreds where i pushed like eight forty five eight fifty. That's 106, 105 in the yard pool and just felt great. Like it was flying. Um, Then Friday was that day where Joe Skipper and Rudy joined us for that session. That was, is in one of the videos. And that was this day was the nail in the coffin for me. And like super high perceived exertion, high lactate, you know, lowish power for the relative effort. Basically, I went all out. It was supposed to be a light threshold stimulus. It was four by 10 minutes and four by five minutes. And yeah, that that was, if maybe if this session, I hadn't pushed it to the extreme, I would have maybe had a better race. I don't know. But this was definitely the end of me. It was all out. I think I averaged uh, six millimoles for this workout, four by 10 minutes and four by five minutes on the bike. And yeah, followed up with this open water swim and uh, an easy run. Saturday, easy day. Sunday was another big brick. And that's seven days out from from the Kona race. And I was still doing well, like four by 30 minutes, 290 watts. And 20K run at 334, 338 per K.
0: And at what point, so you said that on, during that session with the, the session that Joe Skipper and Rudy Voddenberg came out to where you and Lionel were there, where you sort of, um, you know, maybe, maybe like hammered the last nail on, onto your coffin for, for your race at Kona. Did you have any sense of that at the time? Were, were, were you guys talking about it at the time? Like when, maybe when Mikael wasn't there, were you guys sort of questioning like, are we doing too much? Are we, have we overdone this a little bit?
1: Well, I mean, for one thing, I don't blame anyone but myself because I believe the training we were doing was fine. But again, it was how I was doing it. I wasn't doing it as prescribed at all. I was racing and training. I was, I mean, I'm supposed to be at what, like uh, two millimoles and I'm, or three millimoles and I'm at six, you know, I'm, I'm nowhere near to executing the plan as prescribed. So, but yeah, there was, I was talking with Lionel and even Joe was like, oh, you guys are overdoing it. Oh, you're overdoing it. But I basically had no control over myself at this point. And, and that ultimately led me to now, you know, working with a sports psychologist to figure out why couldn't I, knowing I was overdoing it, why couldn't I hold myself back? And it could have been, yeah, the environment, you know, we're, you know, Talbot's filming is for YouTube. I'm chasing Lionel, trying to get ahead of Rudy, you know, all of these factors. But it wasn't good for my race, that's for sure.
0: But it is funny, though, isn't it? Because, like you said, it was so good for the PTO US Open where you had almost an outlier race in your career, like Colin, you've had some great results and, and you winning the PTO US Open didn't come as that much of a surprise to me. Like I've seen you as someone who who has the ability to win races, big races for probably two years now. But compare, if, if you were just to look at your record, like on a piece of paper, everyone would, would acknowledge that that US Open race seemed like a bit of an outlier. Like it's a lot it's probably a lot better than than any result you've ever had, like without a real close second. So it sort of was working is the thing only three weeks earlier. Yeah. And so it sort of makes a little bit of sense that you, rather than just taking, stepping back and taking things back that you were in that tunnel vision mindset of, I just want to do more and train harder and, and push myself more because I feel like I'm so close. Like you beat pretty much, pretty much everyone who raced Kona, obviously minus a few big names were were at the PTO US Open. A lot of the big favorites, you know, Sam Laidlow, Magnus Ditliv, et cetera, were all there and, and you beat them comfortably and you were running strong through the field while they were fading. To me, it's sort of, makes sense why that while you got out there we in a, a training environment with a coach you believed in with a really good training squad filming it it just makes perfect sense to me why you couldn't hold back
1: yeah i just get caught up it also is also i love it you know i love to push myself and you know as hard as i can i mean that's that's how i trained up until the point before training with mccall and basically all year you know leading up to that was just about holding back holding back not pushing to the max because it basically would destroy my body and uh yeah then during that time before the u.s Open, it was like oh yeah now i'm having fun again like pushing myself and then it got carried away
0: can you explain to me colin specifically what were the big changes you made um when it came to your training when you weren't coached by Mikhail and when you were coached to Mikhail? It obviously sounds like you started doing a lot more threshold stuff and stuff with longer efforts, a little bit lower in, in intensity or or lactate levels versus maybe you were just smashing yourself beforehand. But but can you tell us exactly what the differences were?
1: Yeah, the I mean, the biggest difference is intensity control and that's monitored with lactate. Because prior to that in 2021, I was doing actually quite a bit of, you know, four by 20 minutes on the bike, you know, I, I would call it threshold, but whatever I had called threshold was just simply best average or max. I mean, there was no, for me, I thought it was threshold, but I had no really idea what threshold it was just, maybe it's just my pain threshold. I mean, that's what I was training. So any session I did and I was doing, um, like before the boulder 70.3 and the collins cup my go-to run workout was 18 by 1k and it was you know in boulder in the heat on the dirt with no real you know support or cooling and it's just best average till i fade or blow up so that's really kind of how i trained before that and now it's measured it's controlled and making sure i can train well the next day not you know, going beyond my limit to where I'm crippled the next day.
0: And you do hear the Norwegians talk about this. Like you hear Gustav and Christian talk about this himself. You definitely hear Olav talk about it. Um, that like, and they've got a bit of a reputation for being really high volume, high load trainers um, that to be able to maintain a high training load that you must have intensity control. And, does that specifically mean just in your sessions? Like, does it mean, okay, we're going to do a lot of stuff at 70.3 intensity or at Ironman intensity or is it everything? Is it like, okay, in our, in our easier days, we also are very strict with intensity control and in our VO2 max sessions, we're very strict to make sure that we are actually in VO2 um, intensity zones. Can you like sort of tell me specifically what, what that means?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I can't speak for, yeah, what Gustav and Christian are doing. But for, yeah, working with McCall, uh, I do have quite a bit of flexibility on easy days. I mean, it is, you know, make sure it feels easy. Um, but the, so the intensity control is really about the sessions themselves, making sure that that session is not too stressful so that, you know, we can do more work down the line you know later in the week.
0: And so with um with that Kona like block that you did where you're over in Kona and you guys were all training together and, and training super hard when was the point that you did sort of um go okay I'm cooked here was it was it when you're on on the <laughs> out on the Queen K during during the during the run of the race or was it the day before or a few oh, days yeah. before No
1: it it was Monday race week Yeah I I knew the race was done Monday in race week and I was like completely crippled. I was actually calling hospitals to see if I can get an MRI because of very bad hip pain, completely like smashed. I didn't want to train at all. And I took the whole week off.
0: So when, on that Monday, did you actually get into a hospital?
1: No, I got a quote for an MRI and it was like something like three or $4,000 and I was like, nah, I could just risk it, <laughs> see, <laughs> see if a week of rest will, uh, yeah, make it better.
0: So what did that week look like for you then?
1: Uh, A lot of TV, resting. Uh, I mean, I would try to get out for like a 30-minute ride or, I mean, I wasn't running. So just easy swim, very short. Um, And then two days before the race, I had done like a 20-minute open water swim, kind of north of Alihi Drive, so north of the race course. And I was coming back trying to find like the entrance I came out of, but I was in the wrong spot and wave kind of took me into the lava rocks and I got smashed up against the rocks and I got the, the Vana, which is that sea poisonous sea urchin all into my foot. So I was just like bleeding out of my feet and had sea urchin. This is two days before the race. And so I had to deal with that. Um, so yeah, I was, I was basically just trying to get my mind, into a place where I was like, "Yeah, I'm just gonna toe the line and see what happens. Maybe, maybe a week of rest could could help."
0: And so, during this patch where you you creep, like you're basically a cripple on race week, and then have that accident in the water, who are you like keeping this pretty low key and, and pretty secret? Or who are the people you're talking to about this? What is what is the discussions that you're having with your team, and and who is that team?
1: Yeah, the, I mean the team. I had there with me was McCall, Lionel, Talbot, uh, Chris Lieto, Aaron, uh, Sanders. So we were all in like group text and chatting. So yeah, these, these are the people who knew what was going on, but otherwise I just kept it pretty quiet.
0: And was like, was the conversation uh, like that the race was done, that you were, you were cooked and everyone was sort of just sympathizing with you or was there still a little bit of hope you were holding on to and and was everyone Uh, just trying to build you up?
1: Like, I don't think McCall wanted to approach it because, uh, I was definitely pretty down for the, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and uh, I was starting to get my hopes up and then this foot thing happened, but that, that was kind of a minor issue. I just kind of looked past that. I was like, okay, well I can, I can still walk so I could run. um, yeah, I mean I was still trying to be positive as, as best I could and and you know the the race went off and I felt great in the water. I was in the first group. And yeah, then after like 5 minutes I looked down and my front tire was flat. So I was in the, I was in the front group with all the people and just felt fine in the group. Um so I had to stop before we even got to Polani Drive and uh get some CO2, pump up the front wheel and hope it holds and just kept going and basically then i chased as hard as i possibly could to to get onto the group and then i was really cooked i think i produced so much lactate and i was doing like 350 360 watts which is well above my my threshold and especially after taking a week off um yeah i was pretty cooked after that and that was an hour and a half into the race
0: and that's what i was gonna ask next um but you've sort of already taken us there so what happened after that point? It's obviously a, a long eight to 10 hour day if, you, if you're out there and, and when you're sort of, you know, two hours into it and, and you're pretty cooked and, and your race is done. What, what happened for the, the remainder of that race from your perspective?
1: Yeah, well, um, you know, training with Lionel, living with Lionel, he's he has said several times, uh, maybe to me, maybe to others in interviews, that there's only two ways out of Kona out of the race like as soon as you started there's two ways out and that's the finish line or an ambulance <laughs> and i just kind of like you know whenever i heard it, i just kind of like, yeah yeah whatever um but then i was in i was i, I could never imagine i would be in this much pain and agony 90 minutes into an ironman and i was like oh shoot <laughs> <laughs> i gotta keep going <laughs> like there's i couldn't live with myself and I don't think Lionel would ever speak to me again if I quit just because I felt bad or having a bad race so yeah really, it took everything I could to just keep going um you know there were ups and downs I remember like at the past the turnaround um so over halfway down the bike uh I think Patrick Lange was coming by me after he served his penalty and was like come on come on and I had just gone like I don't know 220 watts for the last like hour so I was like yeah okay I'll try so then I was back to doing like 280 and that was good we were making progress it was just sitting you know behind and then i you know the uh on the speed concept on the old one there's that box in the storage box mm-hmm. but I had taken the there was like a piece of tape holding it on so I'd taken that off to get the co2 in the beginning of the race and now the back was just like flapping along because there's no tape holding it. And one of the tubes like jumped, started jumping out of the box, but I didn't know. I just, I, I just started hearing a noise in my back wheel. So I thought I had a, my back wheel was flat. So I stopped, you know, I, I let Patrick Lang go. I just stopped and pulled over, see if my back tire was flat. And I was like, Oh, it's not flat. But then there was a tube that was, rubbing on it so then i took to put it in my jersey and threw it out at the next aid station but still i lost the gap and then i started to chase back and i caught back up to patrick and i was doing like 300 something watts to get there and i tried to stay um you know in contact as as much as i could and then i was just staying until the last you know 30 minutes was kind of downhill into town (laughs) because i i was just kind of coasting i had a lot of like hip pain and I had a headache the whole time. I felt so hot Uh, it was not a
0: pleasant experience to be on that bike course. I've got an update for all of you who already use Pillar Performance products or those of you who wouldn't mind trying them. When you go to Pillar Performance's online shop, choose what you want to get and go to the checkout. We've always had the discount code HTT10 that gets you $10 off your order. This code is great if you're just getting one thing like a tub of triple magnesium powder because it costs $39, so it takes off close to 30%. And we started with this code for everyone who listens to how they train because my favorite Pillar Performance product was the triple magnesium powder. I use it 30 minutes before bed every single night and it's completely changed my sleep for the better. I've just never been someone who sleeps through the night and would never wake up feeling refreshed, energized, and ready for my morning training. But... Pillar Performance's triple magnesium literally completely changed this and now I just would never consider going a night without it. And because I only believe in promoting products I know work and I personally use and love, we had that discount code specifically for people trying the triple magnesium powder um, as it it gave a lot off that particular product and that was really what I wanted to promote because I know it works, particularly for those of you who train a lot. But for the last month, I've Become probably equally as big a fan of some of Pillar's other products like their Ultra B Active and their Vitamin C Plus Zinc Immune. I, I seriously love them both, um, and I think micronutrients are just something I'd never considered using. But now, um, now that I've used Pillar products, it's like why wasn't I using these? Like these have changed my training so much. I just feel so much better. I'm not getting sick as often. I'm sleeping better. I just feel healthier, um, and so I now use all three of these daily. And so I rang Damien who owns Pillar Performance and said, "Damo, if someone wanted to try all three of these, it costs $100 and the HTT 10 code of $10 off isn't quite as good value for that compared to just the single tub of triple magnesium powder. Um, Or like if someone wanted to stock up and get multiple tubs of triple magnesium so they get free shipping, which Pillar do on all deliveries over $80, then it's not actually as good a deal, the HTT 10 code. Um, and so, literally within ten minutes, Demo uh, had set up a code H T T twenty, which gets you twenty percent off all your orders. That's the biggest discount code Pillar have ever done, and it's available to all of you who listen to the podcast. So, if you're wanting to try Pillar for the first time, then I I seriously suggest you start with just a tub of triple magnesium powder. Use the code H T T ten as it's still available as well. Um, so use that at checkout to save yourself almost thirty percent off your first tub. Um, or just anytime you want to buy a single tub of triple magnesium powder or a single um, tub of any of their products. But if you want to save on shipping or try multiple pillar performance products um, based on where you particularly need some help or uh, just like me and sometimes stock up on four tubs of of triple magnesium to save on shipping, then use the new code HTT20 for 20% off and save yourself even more. Before we get into the run, there, why do you think you felt so hot out on the course that day? Whereas in the hotter temperatures at at Dallas at the PTO US Open, you didn't feel hot at all?
1: Yeah, I think it has everything to do with with just overtraining. Like, right, it's the central nervous system. Once you overtap that, the capacity to handle more stress is gone. Like, it's just telling you, stop, like, it's too much. And I think that's exactly what was happening. It was just, it was too too much to handle. Like because of that week prior.
0: And then when you were out in the run, did you sort of consider stepping off at any point, or were you like, even though your hip was was cooked, yeah, you you were having headaches and you're feeling boiling hot, and the race was done, were you ever just, yeah, did you ever consider not finishing, or did you just accept pretty early? Oh,
1: I I considered not finishing every step. <laughs> i was actually I, I came out of the t2 barely like I, I sat down and i spent like a few minutes and i was in quite a lot of pain low back pain um so like getting up out of the chair or like i, I definitely could barely put my shoes on uh, my running shoes on um i walked out of t2 and, you know head down just like oh don't look at me like oh i was you know embarrassed because I actually I truly believe I could have been on the podium you know as far as my my ability and, and fitness you know in the week prior but now yeah I was very in a, in a negative headspace and going on Alihi drive there's like hundreds if not a thousand people spectating and I got to the far end of Alihi drive and turned around and uh Nicole was there and I was like yeah no the race is <laughs> not in the race I mean I'm I'm in the race but i'm not in the race for anything um yeah and i actually had to just dig within myself like so many people were cheering for me by name which is this is the first race i've ever been to where people were cheering me by name and that was a yeah thanks to being in lionel's youtube series i think that's that's why um and eventually i was like okay this is going to be a very miserable experience if i just keep being negative for an entire marathon so i i flipped the switch i started to um you know respond to the crowds you know whatever fist pump and and that really brightened my mood and i just kept feeding off the crowd and, and feeding it back and yeah then there's companionship like uh sam appleton was also having a bad day and he was ahead of me on the run, and then I caught him right at Polani Hill on the way out. We were just chatting and jogging beside each other, and then he took off. Um, and then later in the race, he was walking on the, on the Queen K coming back. And I come up jogging to him. I was like, oh, come on, Sam. Like, there's no, you're still like eight Ks from the finish. No, you're not going to walk this. Like, let's just jog in together. And we jogged in the rest of the, the run. And then same thing out in um, with all the age groupers. I was out in the queen K coming back and there's just lines of the, the the top age groupers. And basically every time I saw someone with the Win Republic kit, (laughs) um, I just started cheering for them and then they would cheer back. And that was, that was fun. And I actually got quite a bit of messages after the race being like, Oh, thank you for cheering for me. It was having a bad day and looked like you were having a bad day. And you know, that's, there's definitely positives you can glean from you know, terrible situations. And, and I think I made the most out of it that day. And I'm thankful I did because it would have been a really, really sucky day if I was just, you know, self-loathing and negative for four hours on on the Queen K.
0: It also says a little bit about how good uh, long course triathlon is at the moment. Like, where long course triathlon is on this like steep trajectory of, of performance getting better and better and, and more people being better every year. Like the fields, the amount of professionals and the, the depth of, of the professional fields right now is really strong. The level of, of winning races is way stronger than it's ever been. Like, literally even since 2017, 18, 19, I think the level is quite a bit higher right across the board. And the person who comes 20th at Kona this year has had like a a much better performance than the person who came 20th at Kona in 2019. And like you had a shitty day, right? Compared to your expectations and, and compared to, compared to your field. But, like it wasn't that bad. Like you still ran three seventeen, I think. From memory, maybe three sixteen. Oh, so which so it's <laughs> it's bad for today's standards, but ten years ago, like the race that you had, probably put you still in the top ten. Like it's not, and it would have been looked at as like a not a bad day. And it's pretty crazy. Does that-, that, does that matter?
1: I mean, we're if we're gonna live in the present, like we can't be comparing ourselves to anyone else in the past
0: it really doesn't matter. You're right. And that's why, like I could also admit it's a shitty day compared to where things are at now and compared to how good an athlete you are relative to where things are at now. But I mean, I guess it's just, it's an interesting side note of how strong the sport is at the moment and how far it's come and, and, and the era that you happen to be competing in.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a, an exciting and fun era to be in.
0: And it sort of takes me on to, to my next line of, of discussion and, and that's, that is your future. And and particularly this year in, in 2023. Um, so, to get there, can you sort of tell me about what happened after the World Championships?
1: Yeah, I was, um, I took one week off and I was back in Colorado and I had my eyes set on Ironman Israel, kind of like a redemption race. But yeah, the, the first day I did bike and run, I was in all the pain came back. So, I really just I shut it down. And I think because of the win at PTO US Open, I mean, a hundred thousand dollars. Like, I'm I was able to afford the time off to focus on getting fully healthy and coming back. Uh, because in the previous years, like, I, I couldn't do that. Like, I mean, I have to go race to race to to be able to have enough money to survive. And I was I was even doing race to race. Yeah, before Ironman Mount Tremblant, like uh, there was, I did Ironman South Africa in April. And now it's like Ironman Mount Tremblant. I hadn't been paid yet for any of the races. And basically, I couldn't pay the credit card bill, you know, without, and that was just a few months before PTO US Open. And so now I'm in the position where I could end the season at Kona, October 8th. And I'm looking to start the season at Ironman Texas, and that's April 22nd. I mean, that's a significant period of time off just to focus on building back up. And so that, that's where I'm at now, in the building stage.
0: So I'll, I'll come to that, but I, I actually think money in the professional tri- triathlon world is fascinating because it's so unknown about how much some people make, and it's so well known. Like People are very good at talking about when they're broke and struggling, as most if not all professional triathletes go through at the start of their career like it really is a sport that before you make it you have absolutely no money and you're relying on yeah going race to race or working a part-time job or your parents paying for it Um, it's just one of those sports and so with you one when when you won the the US Open and you you got a hundred grand to for the win there was there also lots of other stuff that came with that like you did become someone that that a lot of people were talking about and went from, you know, like you said, the the media and and brands and that not knowing who you were before that race to suddenly knowing your name and 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 wanting a part of that. Did you, was like, were people flooding your inboxes saying, hey, we want to sponsor you? Were you suddenly getting all these new brand opportunities and, and exciting opportunities come up after that race?
1: Uh, not really, not really at all. Um, yeah, I don't think brands go up to anyone and say, oh, we want to sponsor you. Not not nowadays. Um, and after the after the U.S. Open, like my eyes were still focused on Kona. So even if someone did reach out to me, I didn't even pay attention, because um, it was just put your head down, get get working, go for go for Kona. Um, and then in Kona, I met um, Adam Mackworth, the manager, Gustav and Christian, and the Santara Group. And started working with him post-Kona. And so that's when I've started to develop relationships and start to work with new companies for this year.
0: Is there anything that you can tell us about or is it all you're sort of keeping it under wraps at the moment?
1: Uh, well, for now, I'm, I'm excited to continue my partnership with Win Republic. I think Luke and Beth McKenzie are doing great things uh, for the sport. Um, and I think they have a, a wonderful like age group team, age group elite team. So you really have and then protein they're they're really growing that side of it i can't tell exactly who's going to be on it next year but it's going to be exciting um and yeah the others are going to have to wait to uh, to reveal that
0: and so at the moment right you're obviously in the build-up to to well april which is it's still um three or four months away and um and having that result at Coney, like you had the the best result of your career at the pto us open you had, one of the worst races you had, you've probably ever had at Kona, and then now you've had this big break where you can afford to take the time off and and really build to to 2023 and, and try and achieve big things. You obviously learnt a lot in the back end of that that year where you you had that high and then that low and and you sort of changed your approach to training and um, and brought on a coach when you'd been self coached for a few years. What are your main takeaways? Like, what are you going to keep from that time, and and what are you going to get rid of from that time? Like, uh, for like, I guess, for example, are you still going to be training with Lionel Sanders and and that little squad in Tucson, and are you going to still be coached by Michael Eden, or are you are you going somewhere in another direction?
1: Yeah, so I'm gonna I'm continuing to work with McCall and uh, I'm excited for that. And unfortunately, that came with the. I've made a decision. I had the open invitation to still go to Tucson this year and train with Lionel. And I, I was super grateful for them hosting me and inviting me into their homes. Um, But our training now is probably not going to be so compatible. So I've ultimately decided not to go back to Tucson, at least, at least for this winter Uh, I've got a, I'm going to head back to Girona and, Work on some bike fitting and getting ready for the season. Just kind of working on some things I need to get worked on. Um, but yeah, it, it was such a yeah, those those two months last year were definitely the best months of of my year. Um, and that was yeah, being around Lionel and and Aaron.
0: So with that, Colin, um, with that patch with Lionel being so so fun for you and you know that one of the funnest patches of your career, but also like probably benefiting you as a professional as well. And I know there's like there's lots of different ways to, to like establish yourself as a professional. You can be not the world's best athlete, but you can you can have some things that, that make you a household name and and really entertaining. And I think being part of that Lionel Sanders training squad really probably did that for you but it also just happened to be when you were you know one of the best in the world at the time so you sort of had both things going for you where you were one of the best athletes in the world and you were part of this really entertaining training squad that people want to hear from um and and now to hear that you're not going to be in that squad going forward um obviously because assuming that means Lionel has stepped away from being coached by Mick Eden, whereas you've chosen to stay with him was was there ever a, a point where you were thinking, well? what's more important, the the coach that I believe in and the training system that I believe in or that squad that can really benefit my career and with people that I, that I love being around and, and enjoy being with?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a hard decision and it's one I had already gone through in 2018. I was part of the Ian O'Brien ITU training group and I love being part of the group and the dynamic and friends, but at the end of the day, like, I needed to do the training I needed, if that made sense. And the group training is fun, but at the end of the day, like it does only benefit one or two athletes in a group. And so ultimately at the end of the day, like if I, I do have to prioritize what's best for me. And I, and I believe Lionel's doing the same and I hope he has a great year. Um, And he's going back to what he knows what works. So you know, we, this is what we have to do.
0: And so what is the plan going forward with your training environment? If you're going to be sticking with Mikael, are you just going to be living and training in Boulder and doing largely your training by yourself or and, you know, linking in with some some groups and some friends where you can or... Is there a chance that because you're under that system, do you go and you know live over in Europe for a bit with with some world championships, both the seventy point three and the Ironman world championships over there this year? Is there a, is there a possibility that you go and live and train in, in the Norwegian environment, um, obviously being coached by Mikael? Or yeah, well, how will that work?
1: Um, yeah, I don't I don't know exactly how it's all going to work, but I'm if I just train alone, that's fine. I, I appreciate any of the company I get to train with. Um, you know, I, I have a few training bases I'm here in Cuenca, Ecuador right now, I've been to the last five years and I'm heading to Girona, Spain next where I have a, yeah, you'll know, work with Senate, um, a team out there, plenty of people to train with. And then I had the Boulder in March, ahead of Ironman, Texas, and I'll be training with Rudy von Berg, who's also coached with McCall right now. So, yeah, that's up until Texas. That's what I have. And then I'll be targeting the PTO races. Um, through the, Those are the main targets this this year. And, yeah, I'll probably be in Fondermont and, and Girona through the summer. So if, we, if I get the link up with Gustav and Christian, that'd be great. I know one of my main goals is to beat them both at a PTO event. So I hope, hopefully, we'll see them at a PTO event this year. <laughs>
0: And with your training this year, have you and Mikael, like obviously this is going to sound a bit dumb um, because obviously you've had these discussions, but what discussions have you guys had following that period? So the the really high success of, of um, the PTO US Open and the insane training you did in the lead up to that and then the insane or really hard, I should say, training that you continued to do after that that ultimately led to a bit of your downfall of, of your performance in Kona. Have you guys talked about all of that and and talked about what you're going to do in the future and what your training is going to look like in the lead up to to races this year and and even what it is currently looking like now yeah
1: we've we've discussed it um debriefed it the you know the training is is going to be similar i mean there's there's no issues with the training program um you know if if the prescribed training program is you know go between three and 2.5 2.5 and 3.5 millimoles then that's the prescribed training load and if i'm doing it at five and six millimoles am i doing it correctly i don't think so so there's it's more about me executing the training better making better decisions day to day and in, in in the workouts
0: and then i guess like sort of the last little bit of things I want to touch on are like the other things that you do in training. So, um, really fascinated fascinated about all those stories and and the year you had. I think you had one of those years, which if I could like have talked to a few people throughout the year, you you were definitely one of the main ones because you were such a like a character and a player, particularly in the last half of that season. So it was like fascinating to hear the inside word on that. Finally, but just some more general um, sort of life and training things uh, apart from apart from your training is there anything else you do for for your performance to make yourself better you know like the obvious things sleep and and diet and we've already talked about your heat prep and and like you know is there things like altitude or or gym work is that what what else goes into to making you the the athlete that you are and and what do you prioritize versus not prioritize
1: yeah um Good question. I try to do all of it. <laughs> Anything that could make me better in uh, altitude training is a big one. I started training altitude in Colorado in 2016 for a summer. And then you know, at the end of 17, 18, I tried to spend more than half the year at altitude. And I think in 2019 and 2020, I spent nine months, maybe above 2000 meters living. Um, and now I'm trying to make sure I can, Spend early season up high, and then train more at sea level before races to get the power back in legs because you do lose some. You know, I'm up. I'm about 2,500 meters right now, and I probably lose 15 to 20 watts on my on my threshold on the bike. So if you think about it, you're you're actually recruiting the muscle less. So you're gonna have smaller muscles up here. So training at sea level is also equally important for for long distance for long distance racing. Um, I work with the Senate team in uh, Girona and that's for like nutrition, um, supplements, diet, and um working with a uh, Dr. Jim Taylor, sports psychologist, figure out why, you know, what's my, my proclivity to overtraining? Like how can I make sure I, I address that and be intentional about choosing, you know, to do prescribed workouts as they're prescribed. And working with uh christopher johnson in seattle he's a physical therapist and and running coach along with lawrence van lingden out of california he's a running coach we're like flora duffy paula finley um so yeah i'm trying to work with as as many experts in the field as possible um because they know better than i do (laughs)
0: And what about your diet, Colin? Do you have it because you are such a light fella? Like you're 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 a tiny guy. Do you are you have you naturally always been really small and light? And um, is it like a big focus for you on eating enough and and to not get even smaller, or are you so small and light because you do focus on it? And and I think a, a particularly important question to talk about in the triathlon scene because people might see someone like, like you. And I, I often talk about this. There's like this thing in triathlons where you go to start lines and you compare yourself to everyone because everyone sees someone that looks skinnier or looks leaner or, you know, looks fitter. And you are one of those typical triathletes who just, you just look like you're insanely fit and, and you look like a triathlete. So what do you, what is your mindset around food and, and diet?
1: Yeah. I mean, firstly, I, I don't think I'm that small, but I know in comparison to the couple podiums I've been on with sam long and magnus didleth i do look pretty small <laughs> <But> <laughs> maybe because they're more of giants <laughs> um but yeah i actually so i started i was on the Jan Ferdino diet because um it, he works with the guys in the senate and last january and february and march i was eating like a, you know a salad or two salads a day like really simple food a lot of fish and salmon and Um, you know, 0% yogurt in the morning and basically, and I, and I'm up at high altitude. I lost like two or three kilos and I was getting like really skinny. Um, and I was eating very healthy. So I eventually tossed the diet out because I had, I, I felt too weak. Like I was losing power on the bike and in the swim. So now I don't have a diet. I just eat, uh, I eat
0: cake and
1: rice and bread and eggs and yeah every everything uh, you can think of
0: and what about on race day like i think that's another thing that there's lots of things that the norwegians have made sort of somewhat famous and and a few of the european boys have made quite famous and and one of them is the amount of sugar that they're consuming during races and trying to increase their their carbohydrate intake to be higher and higher and higher during races where where are you like that? Have you been someone who's always eaten a lot when you when you've raced or hasn't eaten much when you race and, and where are you now compared to where you used to be?
1: Yeah, I think the the Norwegian diet's pretty good. I mean, if you remember I forgot what Ironman race that was, but Gustav was just training and eating, you know, pizza and soda for breakfast or something. So the night before the Dallas PTO US Open I had I had Domino's and a Fanta really for my dinner before that race. Great combo. <laughs> so you got carbs and sugar and, and yeah, during the race, um, I'd been using Morton the past, like, uh, two years and I'm up to yeah, 140 to 150 grams per hour in, in training and racing.
0: And it seems to be what everyone's doing at the moment, doesn't it? I think, Correct me if I'm wrong, Colin, but I think particularly on the men's side of the professional long-course field, you guys all seem to be pushing your carbohydrate numbers during the race, like 140, 150. I mean, like we've talked to Sam Laidlow and Magnus Ditli and, and Olav and, and everyone seems to be doing that. The female side of things doesn't seem to be going quite as crazy there like really trying to get them you know the mid to to high 100s um they still like everyone i'm talking to at least seems to still be sticking sort of 60 80 90 whereas the wow, men really seem so to be low. In, yeah well the men seem to be in a bit of an arms race at the moment about like who can take in more carbohydrate per hour in a race and like yeah. it's very rare that someone isn't now taking in 120 140 150 yeah, I mean
1: I'm I am a smaller guy and you know at 64 65 kilos and I think it's an advantage because I can still take in 150 grams of carbs per hour and if Magnus or you know bigger guys are doing that like I'm getting more fuel per per kilograms in my weight.
0: Do you think that like can just compare a performance to me right? Like let's say if you did the PTO US Open your best race or you know even um we could even go into like any of the ironmans you've done like we could go into Trump blot that that you did just before the u.s open and, and won do you do you think what would the difference in performance for you be if you took in 60 to 80 grams of carbohydrate versus 130 140 150 would you still win those races do you think
1: oh i don't know i think i'd have to slow way down yeah, I don't, I don't think I'd be able to perform at the, at the same level,
0: for sure. And do you notice that in your training as well? Like day-to-day in your training, if you have big sessions, are you taking in that same amount as what you would in the race, you know, like 140 grams of carbohydrate per hour?
1: I mean, I, I try to, um, you know, especially in the build-up to Ironman Tremblant and the PTO US Open. I was training with, with Morton. Um, but a lot of the year and the years before I don't, I just don't have the availability. I'm like, I'm not spending the money, you know, twenty, thirty $30 per training session, um, in Morton. So a lot of my training in the past has been fueled by, you know, Harrybo gummy bears and, and yeah. And Gatorade mix from Costco, like the budget, the budget, uh, diet, <laughs> but yeah, ideally if I could just fuel all the workouts on with high quality race nutrition, then I think the, the, the training goes even better because the recovery is quicker and you can do
0: more, more work. Do you ever do faster training? Do you ever wake up, not eat and go and train? Do you ever do sessions or easy, easy training sessions where you don't eat throughout them and, and, or, or is that just not a thing you do at all and you eat before every session and you eat during every session?
1: Yeah, I, I eat before and during pretty much every session. Like I I went on like an afternoon easy ride here, like 90 minutes, and I forgot to bring anything, and just water. And uh, basically like at an hour 15, I was like, oh, I'm so hungry. I should have, you know, brought something. (laughs) But I was done for the day anyway. So it's more important when you're stacking sessions that you are fueling before, during, and after these sessions.
0: Why is that important, Colin?
1: Uh, because the low, low glycogen availability, I mean, it just limits the amount of power you can put out, you know, if you, if you have threshold sessions, you know, I I know there's all this, you increase your fat oxidation with fasting and all that, but I just don't, I don't know if it's worth it. Like, yes, it's true. You do improve fat oxidation, but does your performance improve that? I don't know.
0: Yeah. That's a, I find that a really, really sort of gray area in this discussion is do you actually become a faster triathlete as a result of that because there is you're you're 100% right that all of the discussion around you know um not eating as much or doing some faster training or some limited like carbohydrate training is that like yes your fat oxidation gets a little better yes your glycogen sparing gets a little bit better but does it actually make you a faster triathlete on race day because to me, all I'm looking at is who is winning races and what are they doing. And every single person in the world that that seems to be winning big races, um, let's talk for you. We're like it, it, it is across the men's and women's field, but let's talk the men's field because we're we're talking to you. All the all the guys who are at the front of the, the sport at the moment, you know, um, Gustav, Christian, yourself, Magnus, Sam Laidlow, Max Newman, etc., Sam Long, um, Joe Skipper, they're all doing what you're doing. They're all eating a lot. They're all fueling all of their sessions. They're all um, pushing their carbohydrate per hour number during training and racing. So, like, we, if we're seeing that and we're all acknowledging that it's the fastest the sport's ever been, then yeah, you got it. You do have to question. Like, even though it, it does, it might improve your fat, oxida- fat oxidation and and your glycogen sparing. Does it actually make you a faster triathlete?
1: Yeah, I mean that's the that's the question, and I don't think it does. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna play around with it.
0: Yeah, you wouldn't. Would you, would you ever do um, a period where you go, "Well, fuck it, I'm gonna see if it does," and and just like start doing some faster training, start not eating as much um, during your easy easy sessions, and only really fueling your actual sessions, and then on race day, or or would you would you ever go like the crazy end of it and try like a you know a keto diet or you know fast till till midday every day
1: no no no. i'm just gonna do do what works um what's worked in the past you know i in my early 20s or in university like i remember doing you know intentional fasted rides i would do like a four hour hard group ride with no calories and yeah i could do it i mean but i'm smashed i'm smashed for like two days afterwards like it's not it's not worth it.
0: Yeah. I think that's a good message because there's a lot of confusion in the triathlon space. And I think a lot of people unintentionally or intentionally sort of get a bit caught up in it. And so it's nice to see someone who is like you and, and, you know, so good and, and looks like a triathlete and, you know, promoting these messages of you don't have to do anything crazy and you can still be one of the best in the world. And and look like a triathlete and and all those things. And like for everyone listening, um, before me and Colin started recording now, we had to sort of delay by a couple of minutes because Colin was eating a a piece of cake before we recorded. So (laughs) he's, he's not lying about, about that.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the important message is, you know, what, what do triathletes look like? It could be any body type, like at this day and age, we have, you know, bigger people who maybe don't look like the fastest people who are winning races. And that's the most important message is if you want to be training a lot or training hard and racing well, you need to eat a lot. Like we're you're spending a lot of calories and and people don't realize how many calories they're spending and they do need to eat. Like you go on a four or five hour ride, that's that could be like three, four thousand calories you you do need to put back in. Because if you've got a deficit, how are you going to be training the next day for another three or four hours?
0: 100%. I love that message, mate. And it's, uh, yeah, it's it's the best because you, what you say is is exactly how I think we should all think about it is that what what's actually going to make you the best triathlete and the best, or the best athlete, the best runner, whatever it is, you know, if you if you don't have energy all the time and you can't do your, your, cons- your sessions consistently and you're not, you're not showing up to training feeling fresh and full of energy every day because you're starving yourself, you're not going to be the best athlete, are you? You're, you're not going to be close to the best triathlete you could be versus if you're fueling properly and, and you're happy and healthy and, and feel like you've, you're full of energy every day. So, yeah, I bloody love that message. And I think probably a good note to end on, Colin. Um, so thanks so much for coming on. It was, uh, like I already said, a story that i wanted to hear like i've wanted to talk to you probably the last half of this year and it just got like every sort of two two three weeks that went by it kept like being like oh i want to talk to colin more because you just seem to be in everything and 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 your story you know particularly in 2022 just got more and more fascinating and i don't know the high of the, the u.s open and then the low of kona really really sort of cemented that and and for me, just makes me so f- so keen and, and fascinated by what you're going to do going forward because you're still pretty young in the sport. You know, you're not you're not close to retiring yet. Um, you're you're coming into your absolute prime. You're clearly already one of the best in the world on your day. And and I think that you know, without making those same mistakes in training, I think you're a real threat across both distances. the the the, the PTO races. Ironman World Championships big Ironman races like I think you're a name that everyone needs to know about if they don't already and 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 I think we can definitely count on you to to win and podium on some big races this year and I can't wait to watch you do it so yeah make sure you don't do anything crazy again like you did in Kona and uh and and can't wait to follow yeah
1: Yeah, I'll try not to yeah well it's uh been a pleasure uh to be here thanks for having me
0: awesome mate have a good rest of your night, and uh, and we'll chat again soon. All right, thanks, Jack. See you, Colin.